When Harvard was founded in 1636, it was founded to educate male ministers. There weren't schools until women started developing their own schools and educating women themselves. So when you look at history, it's not really a surprise that it's a function of the people who were educated, who could write, and that was primarily a male culture. That's Jill Teejan, an electrical engineer and author of books including American Her Story and Hollywood Her Story. Jill joins us in honor of International Women's Day to talk about our latest gender parity survey of over 500 healthcare professionals called Women as the Heartbeat of Healthcare. This report examines what's holding women back from healthcare's top leadership positions and what we can do about it. For more, check out our show notes. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. Check out our digital healthcare publication called Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. And follow us on Twitter at OW Health Editor for more on the business of healthcare transformation. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Terry Stone managing partner in Oliver Wyman's health and life sciences practice, and I'm also the global chair for our inclusion and diversity efforts here at Oliver Wyman. I'm here with Jill Teejan, who is the president of Her Story Alliance. And I had the pleasure of meeting Jill over the last six months and actually inviting her to participate at OHIC, our Oliver Wyman Health Innovation Center Summit, And um, Jill and I actually at the opening dinner spent some time talking about women and a topic that's near and dear to my heart about women in healthcare leadership and why we need more of them, why we need more diversity of thought and perspective to break through some of the intractable problems in healthcare, why women matter so much given that 80% of the healthcare decisions are made typically by women but that they're really underrepresented in the most senior ranks in healthcare. And so on the basis of that, we had hooked up with Jill, who's got a much broader mandate that she's working on to try and help raise awareness of women and the amazing things they've done and contributed. And so with that, I'm excited to introduce Jill. Um, Jill, it'd be great if you could talk a little bit about um, Her Story Alliance, how you got started, why you're passionate about it, and help the rest of our audience understand why I was so excited by it. Thank you so much, Terry. It's such a pleasure to be here today. I'm actually an electrical engineer, which surprises many people because I now write books. I am not, as some would say, revising history, but restoring the missing pieces. I like that. The stories of the half of humanity. Isn't it wonderful? The stories of the half of humanity that rarely appears in history books the world over. So I've been writing books and working to increase the number and percentages of women in science, technology, engineering, and math for 40 years and not seeing the needle move very much. And actually in engineering, the needle hasn't moved since about 1985, which is a long time. And so I began to believe that there's another series of issues at work there's a big issue around unconscious bias. And the Her Story Alliance works to address issues around unconscious bias through storytelling. Storytelling is through 
exercises in workshops, through videos, through other multimedia, because we have to address this issue of women in leadership and having others in leadership. These teams that are more diverse make much better decisions, but it's much harder to get to those decisions. But we have to get to the point where we are accepting of people of all kinds of thought processes and gender and race and ethnicity and all of the factors that contribute to diversity, first in their family to go to college, first generation, all of those kinds of things in order to ensure that we are making decisions in businesses that actually are good decisions that align with our customers. Absolutely. Diversity of perspectives is what allows for orthogonal thinking and sort of breakthrough ideas. And I think we're really starting to see more of people in business starting to understand and appreciate that. Now, understanding and appreciating it and then overcoming the fact about why do we therefore still seem to struggle to have diversity in the most senior ranks, I think is the interesting problem we face. But it's not just diversity by gender, it's diversity by a whole a whole range of backgrounds, experiences, et cetera. I love what you said about unconscious bias or implicit bias, because we as human beings are trained to make associations, to make shortcuts. And when someone says astronaut, I think Neil Armstrong, not a female, right? Or when I say nurse, someone thinks woman, not man, right? And we, we do this all the time in our everyday life, right? We do it all the time. Yeah. Women have been present and have had a lot of impact, but for various reasons, they're maybe because there weren't as many of them, but as a result, they just, they get kind of washed out or they're, they're kind of, they, they get lost in the noise of all of what we talk about. And so it really is difficult because if we make associations with things based on the frequency with which we see them in our everyday life, it's what holds us back from people seeing these possibilities. Well, it, it, it is. And, and what you're saying is incredibly important. Let's also remember, and we'll just start in the U.S., that in the U.S., from pretty much its founding by European cultures, there was no formal system of education. As quote-unquote schools developed was for men, and it was primarily men to go into the ministry. So the people that could write the people that could write history early on were almost exclusively men. And they wrote about the things that they were interested in and the people that they knew, which were men. And so when Harvard was founded in 1636, it was founded to educate male ministers. There weren't schools until women started developing their own schools and educating women themselves. So when you look at history, it's not really a surprise that it's a function of the people who were educated, who could write, and that was primarily a male culture. Now, public schools were established in the middle 1800s, but remember, 2020 is only the 100th anniversary of women being able to vote in the U.S. So there's a lot of pieces of history that if you look hard enough, you can find it, but that aren't in our standard history textbooks, which content of that, those history textbooks, now has increased to the point where it's about 10% female, 
which means it's 90% male. And so that leads us to make those snap decisions that you're talking about in order to function with all the data that's coming our way based on the social structures that we have that are also based in the U.S., except in Louisiana, on English common law, under which when the pilgrims and the early colonists came to the U.S., women were civilly dead, which meant that they had no rights. They had no right to their wages. They had no right to own property. They had no right to vote. They had no right to an education. They had no right to custody of their children in case of a divorce. And so in spite of the fact that we here in the U.S. don't like to think that history is having an effect on the way that we behave today. Yeah, yeah. And I'm an engineer and not a sociologist, but history is having an effect. Yeah, it's interesting what you say there, because if you believe in this idea of implicit bias or unconscious bias, what we're surrounded by early on does naturally affect us. And it's neither good nor bad. Like we can we can talk about whether or not we think it was the right type of laws, but whatever they were, they were the laws. And as a result, that's probably very much part of the reason why women were underrepresented in the public eye, we're underrepresented, therefore, in what shows up in the history books, right? It had nothing to do with aptitude or capability, but they weren't going to have access to certain things. And so given that we teach history from children from an early age, and given who the cast of characters you learn from are, either in history or in the history of science, et cetera, there's just a natural skew in it. And if we can remediate that, imagine what the possibilities are. That's correct. All of us have these biases. Someone said to me recently, that this dentist was working on something. My mind just went, oh, it was a man. And then when she used the pronoun of she, I went, oh my goodness, there, I did it again. Right, I'm, I'm doing it. It's sort of like when a female pilot walks out of the cockpit. And I think to myself, huh, isn't that interesting? As if it's a, an anomaly, you know, which means that all the rest of the time, I'm just reaffirming in my head that for some reason I associate pilots with men. I still know that in business today, there are a lot of very well-intended people who are socially very progressive, and they believe that they are completely not biased in any way, and they run big organizations or they're very senior and high up. And despite their best efforts, including putting people in charge of inclusion and diversity, including claiming it's a top strategic priority, we still struggle to make progress, right? And part of the challenge for women is often that when there are so few women in the senior ranks, women have a lot of things socially in common just by virtue of being of the same gender. Like we're not all the same, 50% of the population, but we often we often will have some common interests that are very different from men. Um, we often will have life experiences that we can bond over that are very different, right? By virtue of who we are. And so when we find other women, I find that we fast bond like that as well. And we often quickly develop affinity. I'd love to hear from you what reactions were, whether folks came up to you after our conversation um, on the stage that night, because I was surprised by the number of men in the audience who came up after and said, you know, I'd never thought of it that way. One of them said, I called my wife that night and started talking to her. And she's like, yeah, that's really what it's like. I had another gentleman say to me, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I can also see how in my organization, he's like, the CEO often goes to the same three or four people when he's got a tough issue. And you can always see the one or two that he leaves out. And I don't think in this case, he was even talking about it being about gender. But he said that whole point on diversity, he said, you can see the, the one or two he often leaves out. And I think it's because he goes like, oh, they're going to be a real pain in the neck when we start talking about this. And he goes, and I can see how it causes us to 
narrow our thinking exactly at the time when you have a difficult issue that you want to open it up. So I was really struck by when we could represent it as being not something that people were purposely doing, but it's just a human trait that if we can be more aware of, we can do something about and we can overcome our, you know, our natural biases. I was really optimistic because I was surprised at how many men were struck by it as something like I hadn't thought of it that way. And it gives me something to think about how to address women too. Well, I can't remember if it's you and I that had this conversation or someone else on your staff that had said that they had been affiliated with um, a gentleman who said that although he had no biases in whom he picked for his management team, if you weren't argumentative with him and if you didn't state your case and if you didn't do it in a loud voice. There you go that that was the dynamic that he was comfortable with because that was how his family behaved and that was how he was brought up. And he didn't even realize that he was coming to that conclusion in terms of how he evaluated people that if they weren't argumentative and if they weren't loud and if they didn't contest his decision, then he just dismissed them as not having leadership capability. That was actually me who shared that with you, Jill. And I, it is interesting. I think it's a great example of someone who said, look, I have a lot of women on my team. I go, that's great. And he goes, I don't, I, I have no bias Yeah, to your point. He said, I mean, I just want people who are going to tell me like it is. I want people who are going to like stand up for a point of view and wrestle it down. And it wasn't until I heard him say that, that I actually stood back and thought like, wow, no, that actually is just another bias that you don't even realize you have. So I think we're all on a journey. I, I think this entire discipline of understanding sort of the psychology behind how we think and act. Correct. And what that means in terms of when we try and drive change in organizations, when we try try and drive change in society. I, I think it's a wide open area for us to start making incredible amounts of progress as we go forward, especially with folks like you who are really committed to trying to change some of the foundational aspects of it by raising visibility and awareness. Talk a little bit about where you're going with um, some of the consulting work you're planning on doing. Well, what we are launching are at the moment is we're putting together workshops where we actually use examples from history, not the standard examples that most of us learned about, but other people from history, women, people of color, other people, however other is defined, and tell their stories from their perspective what the issues were for them. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think we need breakthrough thinking. We need all the brains at the table, not keeping some inside and some on the outside. And so I'm actually quite optimistic that um, between the efforts that folks like yourself are pushing forward, by the efforts that I know we're trying at Oliver Wyman, and I know many Fortune 500 companies and many startups are trying to push as well about how do we change the nature of the narrative? How do we make people just be more conscious and aware? Right. This is not a matter of good or bad. It's not a matter of like you're on the right side or the wrong side. It's a matter of being aware and then choosing to, as a, as a result of that awareness, just do something differently tomorrow, right? Mask the names on the resumes when you screen them. Don't have um, people do self-assessments because we know those are generally biased against cer certain um, ethnic minorities and women because they tend to just statistically always grade themselves X percent points lower than their typical counterpart who's had the same level of objective performance. That's correct. You know what, Jill? Usually we close these out by asking if you had a magic wand or all the money in the world, what would you do to change in healthcare? 
Today, I'd like to ask you if you have all the money in the world or could wave a magic wand, what would you do to help impact these issues around diversity and inclusion and how we actually take things to the level we're all aspiring to? Well, the magic wand answer would be that I would want business and government and all of the nonprofit world to reflect through their entire organization, the population, so that there was more gender equity, so that there was more racial and ethnic equity, so that people that are making the decisions are reflective of the population that they represent and serve. And that will require all of us to understand that we have unconscious biases and to look very, very carefully at the assumptions that we make as we hire, as we educate, as we promote. Great. I love that. And so I think that's a great hope for all of us. Well, thank you again, Joe. We love having you on. Looking forward to working with you. Well, thank you so much for having me today, Terry. It's such a pleasure always to speak with you. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's show, we invite you to subscribe so you'll be notified whenever a new episode goes live. For more information, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.